This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Our guest today is David Brooks, also known as The Granite Geek, which is the title of the column he writes for the Concord Monitor. David has been a columnist since 1991 and has been awarded by organizations from the New Hampshire Press Association to the NH Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us, David. My pleasure. David, could you describe for us the path that took you to journalism? What attracted you to the industry and how'd you break in? Uh, Obviously, what attracted me to the industry was the comics page of the newspaper as a kid. Um, I think that's fairly common, at least for for my age group, maybe not uh, kids today, and reading the listing of hit songs from the local AM radio stations when the Beatles were being big, you know. So I, I, I like newspapers. And of course, Vietnam War was going, so there was always stuff in the news. And my dad was in the military. So so I had an interest in newspapers um, growing up. I got my bachelor's degree in mathematics, another interest. But there's not much you can do with a, a bachelor's degree in mathematics. You really need advanced degrees, which was over my head. So I sort of fell back on newspapers uh, as a default. And I actually, my first job in a newspaper was typesetting that I just took it uh, to make some money and to see what a newspaper was like while well, I found out what I wanted to do in life. It was a small daily, and when they had an opening for a reporter, uh, I was able to sort of weasel my way into the newsroom, and that's how I got started. And that was 42, three years ago. And I've worked for daily newspapers ever since. Um, Tennessee, I grew up in Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, West Virginia, uh, and then up in New Hampshire. I've been in New Hampshire for 30 some odd years. I was 28 years at the Nashua Telegraph, and I've been seven years now at the Concord Monitor. Almost always as a roughly a general assignment reporter with an emphasis on technology, science, business. Um, I spent a few years on the copy desk. Your voice today seems to be um, part reporter, part columnist. Can you tell me how you developed that voice? Yeah. Um, so actually, I started writing comp. So when I was at the Nashua Telegraph, the Sunday paper had launched just a couple of years before. And one of the things they had inside one of the sections was a SciTech page. And it was just wire copy. And I said, oh, this. And when I started, moved to the copy desk, I said, oh, this is interesting. Can I do stuff with this? And when you're in the newsroom, you're surrounded by English majors, right? And so none of them wanted to do anything with the SciTech page. So um, I, I got to play with it. And part of playing was I started writing little briefs that, you know, to fill space. Uh, if any of you have ever been on a newspaper copy desk, you know that there's always little holes that have to be filled. And that just turned into a column that I wrote mostly to entertain myself. And uh, it's sort of kept from there. So writing a column, and you're right, about two-thirds of what I do is, is straight reporting. One-third is column kind of voice. Writing a column in many ways is much easier because you can fill in the gaps yourself without having to find a source to give you information. For a lot of times when you're a reporter, you know something is true, you know the facts, but you, you need to find a source to, to say it and put it in the story. And that's time consuming. And then when you're a columnist, you can just say it yourself. So in many ways, writing a column is easier. Reporting a column is easier. Let me put it that way frequently. Writing it may or may not be easier. I've developed, uh, you know, quote, a voice over time just by, you know, I've written thousands of them. I, I once calculated how many words I'd written. 
you know, and various estimates. It was well over five million, and I got depressed, so I stopped. Um, wow. <laughs> Do you have a favorite word? <laughs> me. That's my favorite word. Me, me, me. <laughs> Good, good one. Um, how do you go about deciding what to write about for your columns? Again, this is where columns are easier. I write about what interests me. I mean, obviously, that's a, a slight exaggeration for effect. Uh, it needs to have some, I have to feel that it has some impact or uh, some interest to the outside world. But there are things I write about that are only of interest to me. And um, the classic example being culverts. I've written about culverts a lot. Culverts are awesome. So, and I, in the process of writing about them, I think I've made some readers understand that they're they're important. They're a, they're a signifier of climate change's effect on our infrastructure. Because when you get extreme rains, they wash out a culvert, and all of a sudden you can't drive down that road anymore. That thing you've never noticed before is suddenly very important. And but they're small enough that they can be sort of understood as compared to you know big sweeping infrastructure bills or something. So I write about things that interest me. I mean, this week's column is about there are a couple of nonprofit avalanche groups in the in the Mount Washington Valley join, which is you know really boring. Who cares about organizations joining together? So I use this as an excuse to talk about how climate change is making avalanche forecasting more difficult and what that might mean for people like me who hike. So it's it's I'm driven largely by I had the luxury of being driven largely by my own personal interest. Many writers who have been in the game for many years have developed a relationship of sorts with their readers, but you've taken it a step further by hosting monthly science cafe meetings. Could you tell us how and when that started, what that's like, and how it has fostered a connection between you and your audience? Sure. Uh, and I, so let me have a proviso, though. Since COVID, we stopped them, and I have not started them up again up in Concord. Um, they, are in, they are operating in Nashville, but I'll, let me step back. So 11 years ago or something, I was approached by a couple of people who wanted to start a science cafe. That's a you know, a monthly discussion in a bar or a restaurant about some topic that would have more of a science and technology bent, sort of, you know, like a, a book group, except it's about sciencey stuff. And they exist all uh, in many parts of the world. And there's a number of them around the U.S. And they basically wanted me to get involved, partly because, you know, I was obvious and partly because I'd give them free publicity in the newspaper. And I said, that was a great idea. I'd been looking for something like that. My wife and I, you know, our kids were growing up and leaving the house and my wife and I were looking for stuff to do. And that was exactly this sort of thing I was looking for. So we started it down in Nashua. Um, it got popular enough that I, when I moved to the Monitor, I started it up here in Concord and they, other people took it over in Nashua as well. So we had two of them going. Since then, the Sea uh, Science Museum in Manchester has started one. They're still going strong down in, in downtown one of the bars in Manchester. There's been one out in the seacoast that has started and stopped. There's one in Keene. You choose a topic, you find a couple people to answer questions about it, and people come into the, the bar or the restaurant and ask them questions for a couple hours. It's very casual. My role was always as moderator. And, you know, I'm publicist, obviously. Um, and definitely, you're right, I, I met people who were had been were already readers of the column or of the newspaper or who became readers of the column and the newspaper or the, in 2006, I started a blog back when blogs were cool and uh, turned into, it's also a newsletter now. 
I, I imagine it has changed the way some of your readers engage with your work. Has it changed the way that you do your work at all? No, the Science Cafe hasn't really. Science Cafe, the Science Cafe to me is very much like reporting for a, a story. Is you get a couple of experts on a topic and you ask them questions and you think about what they've said. Um, I just, you know, it doesn't require the last step, which is organizing it into a story. But otherwise, it's very similar to doing to doing the reporting I do all the time, which is one of the reasons it was fairly easy for me to become a moderator and to organize it for so long. The thing that has changed reporting more is is the blog and newsletter. And as a sort of a spinoff from that would be social media, because that's lots of smaller all-the-time items as compared to, you know, once a week, big column or twice a week, big column. And that's that's a different, somewhat a different approach, uh, much more, for me anyway, and I think for most people, it's much more casual, much more uh, conversational than when you're, you know, putting words in print on paper or or in a in a formal blog underneath a masthead. It's, I mean, sorry, in a, in a formal newspaper underneath a masthead. As you could, you know, the Granite Geek blog, I mean, well, until, for example, today I just put up the column, this, today's column from the Monitor, which is about the avalanche and the climate change. And, you know, the Monitor had a newspaper kind of headline on it. And so my headline for the blog was, you know, Climate Change Ruins Everything, Chapter MCMX LVII, the Avalanche Edition, which is not something you would put, not something you'd put in a newspaper. So that, 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 that has been more of a change than Science Cafe, actually. So. How about the uh, newspaper landscape overall? How have you seen that? Um, how have you seen that landscape change? And do you feel that the role of columnist has changed with it? Uh, newspaper landscape. This is where you do the you know the sad trombone noise um, because of course it's uh, it's declined precipitously since I started. I mean, I was I was of the generation that came in right after Watergate that was all excited about newspapers and you know they were they were they were doing everything. And it, the local news really peaked around uh, the probably about the millennium in terms of a business and in terms of staffing and in terms of uh, sort of the reach and importance. And I'm talking again about print journalism, newspapers in particular. Um, and it's it's declined precipitously then. And you go down to the you know the newsroom in the New Hampshire State House used to be just just packed. There wasn't enough room for it. People would fight over who got the desk. And now it's you know it's a post apocalyptic wasteland. There just aren't that many staffers. And frankly, if you'd asked me this question six seven years ago, I'd have said it's doomed. Uh, there there just wasn't there just isn't enough money to support local journalism in the, the old business ecosystem, which is advertising and subscriptions. They're just, advertising is gone. It's all gone to, you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and whatever. And there just isn't enough money in subscriptions to support what you and I think of as standard local journalism. However, in the last three or four years, really, and New Hampshire's really seen this, there's been a growth in non-traditional local journalism. And I'm thinking of like Report for America, which is a national nonprofit that pays roughly half the half the salary of a reporter, sticks them in local newsrooms. There's, you know, there's conditions and all that. And we have a couple of them right now. So it's, you know, it's, it's increased the, the newsroom staff at the Monitor by a, a sizable extent. Um, 
There's some nonprofits. The New Hampshire Bulletin is is the classic example. It started up two years ago, three years ago, uh, with a couple of very, very experienced journalists, uh, and has been has done great work. And doesn't have a you know a corporate overlord and doesn't sell ads. It's a different thing. Uh, Vermont has a couple of statewide nonprofits, Vermont Digger and Seven Days, that are that are pretty experienced, pretty pretty established. So. I'm much more hopeful for that local journalism will continue, even though the private commercial model is is not succeeding. We should mention the the New Hampshire the Grand State News Collaborative, which is responsible for this podcast as well. Exactly, and and that's an that that's an interesting one because it's almost its function is almost like what AP was. The, the, the news collaborative AP Associated Press back before it you know cratered because it depended it was supported by payments from you know newspapers like ours and others and we still pay it but we pay it mostly for I believe the the national sports wire is really all we use from it but part of what it did was it gathered together stories from member organizations and made them accessible to each other which is uh, what the news collaborative has done and that's you know. That's great. I mean, that's awesome. There's there's no reason why a story written in Keene has to, you know, can't be read by somebody in the seacoast or in the North Country or Concord. So, no, I, you, you're right. I should have mentioned the collaborative. It's it's another example of non There's And there's like Manchester Inklink and In-Death NH. Those are both nonprofits, independents started by former journalists, former newspaper people, I believe, all of them. Experienced journalists who were frustrated by, you know, all the layoffs. So, so it's great. I enjoyed a recent column you wrote about deer hunting. Um, I'd like to know, use that as an example uh, to kind of get a, uh, a closer look at how you do your work. Could you tell me how you got onto that topic? How did you go about investigating it? And what did you learn? Okay, uh, sure. I'm not a hunter. So um, I'll start out with that. I'm happy to have hunters. So I got onto it because I've written about hunting every year. Hunting is your, you know, the start of hunting season, in particular deer season in the fall. It's a big event in New Hampshire that you mention at least or write about just because it's a big event in New Hampshire. I mean, it's like, you know, the presidential primary or something. It, you know, hundreds, hundreds on opening day, opening weekend of rifle season firearm season, there's probably, there's well over a thousand people out in the woods. So you write about it, you're interested journalistically just because it's a, a thing in the community, right? So I'd written about that for years and various news aspects of it, things like that. And the bigger story was has been the continuing decline in the number of hunters as urbanization and, and other aspects happen. I've written that story many times over the years. Sub stories of which the coolest, the one you probably know about, is the return of wild turkeys. So wild, yes. turkeys, yeah, they were pretty much wiped out. Uh, they were they were wiped out in New Hampshire, and they were brought back in the seventies. That didn't work. They came back in the eighties, and they got established. And now they're everywhere, right? So that's a cool story. So basically, it was I was I was thinking, hey, you know, fall's coming. I should write about. And and let me just say, part of the reason I think we write about it, a lot of our readers are suburbanites and don't hunt is to remind them, hey, this thing happens. This is a thing in the, in the state that's important to the state that you may not know about. So it's just, it's almost a reminder story. 
um, sort of like maple maple season. I mean, maple syrup season, right? You know, you may not go out to a syrup house, but doggone it, it's part of New Hampshire. So I was thinking about it, and I made a joke in on Twitter uh, about, geez, I wish I had hunters coming to my property because the blankety blank deer keep eating all my, they eat all the peaches off my tree. They're stealing all the dropped apples that I usually grab for applesauce. And somebody responded saying, well, actually, I'm looking for somewhere to hunt. And so she was going to come to my property. And uh, we, she came and uh, turns out she's a food writer for the Washington Post who lives in Cape Cod. And she had been hunting on a farm that the guy did for various reasons that wasn't available. And so she was looking for somewhere to hunt. So she came out here and we stomped around the property and looked for good places where she could set up. As it turns out, she had to she had to cancel last minute because of, you know, actually, I think she had to do a podcast. <laughs> oh, sure. Blame it on the podcast. Blame it on the stupid podcast. Anyway, so those darn okay. deer are still rampaging around because of podcasts. So, but anyway, but it, so that gave me a hook, right? Here's a hook. I'm not a hunter, but I want a hunter. And then she had written column about how venison is the most eco-friendly of, of meats if you hunt it yourself. And I, I absolutely agreed. And I'd sort of mentioned that in past stories, but I thought I'd use that as, as the hook and use her as the hook about it. And so that's what the column was about saying, you know, if you, if you know, what's the most eco-friendly food, you know, you can go out in the woods and, and pluck mushrooms, but you're removing something from the environment that's good. But if you go out and you shoot a deer around here in Southern New Hampshire in particular, the deer, there's way too many of them. And they, they're really damaging to the ecosystem. They, they really are altering our forests because they, they, they eat all the, uh, the seedlings before they can sprout. There are, uh, I know Harvard Forest uh, down in Massachusetts, an experimental forest, is, is doing fencing to see how the ecosystem works. If you can keep all the deer on, it's a radical difference. So there's kind of an invasive species, even though they're native. So killing them off is not is actually making the ecosystem better. So when you're you're getting your meat, but you're also improving the environment in a very small way. So that was kind of, was kind of the essence of the uh, of the column. So you know, I uh, got oh, go ahead. One one thing that was uh, sparked my interest. Uh, one reason I wanted to ask you about that story or that column is because I know that from my own past in. Uh, working in newspapers, some of the most vigorous responses we've gotten from our readers is when we've suggested that hunting is a thing that people do and it's a, a valued part of our culture. And um, and particularly if we have put a picture of a uh, harvested animal in the paper, we've gotten some really, uh, I'll say, spirited responses from our readers. I'm wondering, did you get any um, feedback on that particular column? So I braced myself for it. You know, figured some of our liberal, crunchy granola readers would react. And I only got one, much to my surprise. And I, and, and I got several from Hunter saying, you know, golly, thank you for writing that. Okay. So I was, I've had the experience you have in particular, you're right. So we did not have a picture of a, you know, a dead deer hanging from a hook at the, at the harvesting <laughs> station. So uh, that probably would have added to it, but it, it could easily have happened is there is a large number of people who don't want to be reminded of the fact that when they eat a hamburger, there was a live animal, uh, part of it at one point. And they're offended that, you know, you would 
my child doesn't want to eat a hot dog anymore because you told him it used to be a pig. <laughs> and I said, well, such is life, my friend. At the, so we're at a time of great change in the uh, local media landscape. You already mentioned um, the uh, development of these uh, not-for-profit organizations and how they've uh, changed the, uh, the scene here. I'm wondering, though, as someone who focuses a lot on technology, how do you see technology interacting with the way that we uh, share news today and particularly how it, what's your forecast for how that might further develop in the future? Well, since I've been so staggeringly incorrect for years about this, I'm not sure I do any <laughs> anymore, but, but let me step back slightly and say, I actually think one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years um, at, is that people have, even the general public, um, has come to value the idea of local news a little more, even though they still, you know, they get mad at their local paper because it you know, misspelled their kid's name in the sports section or something. But, but so I actually think there's somewhat of a groundswell of people who are interested in the idea of local news still existing. Technology does, is not entirely friendly to that. So I'm, you know, I'm old enough that I was around when the internet started, and I one time I had five email addresses at the Telegraph. I was the first guy with an email address at the Telegraph as part of the as part of the paper. Okay. Back, back in the day when you had CompuServe address and an AOL address and you know a Genie address <laughs> and stuff like that. Anyway, and we thought, right? We thought it was going to be. It was going to be awesome. We were going to make just as much money from ads, and yet we were going to spend less on circulation, and we were going to be rolling in it, and that didn't work out too well. And the the saying was you traded uh, advertising dollars in print for advertising dimes on the website, and that's been traded for advertising pennies on mobile with your phone. Phones, you know are great for scrolling, are great for quick hits, are great for zipping through a whole lot of stuff fast. I don't think they're very good for actual journalism. Having said that, I didn't grow up with one. And you ask a 20-year-old who's never seen life without everybody's having a phone, it, it may not be as much of an issue for them. So I am unclear as to whether... If if we if most people transition entirely to the, the equivalent of their phone and mobile devices, what local journalism will look like in that format? It can't just be social media of people sharing stuff because there has to be stuff to share. And you know most of reporting is is kind of dull and time consuming, and nobody's going to do it unless you're paid. To some extent. And how that will fit into, you know, a TikTok world, um, I haven't, you need to ask somebody with less gray hair than me. <laughs> well, thank you. Julie, do you have any uh, questions for David? I, I do. I have a question. Um, what advice would you give to people who are interested in entering the world of journalism um, from your experience? My experience is almost entirely irrelevant in terms of building a career uh, <laughs> anymore in journalism because it has changed so much. I, no, seriously, I, this comes up all the time. And so one of the one of the great things about working for a newspaper or any 
news organization is, at least in, up until now, you've had a mix of experiences. So there's, you know, there's me and a couple other guys. They're only all males, it turns out, roughly my age. And, you know, we talk about grandkids and, you know, remem- rem- reminisce about having five email addresses. And then there's a bunch of 20-somethings, reporters who are fairly new and who run circles around us, certainly energetically and with new ideas. And that's a great mix. You don't want nothing but 20-somethings and you don't want nothing but 50-somethings. You really want a little homogeneity, if I pronounce that right. So, but part of that is a, you know, what's your advice? And I... 15 years ago, I had great advice on how to build a career in journalism, but that doesn't really work anymore. You know, start at the local paper and then work up to the regional paper and then, you know, yeah, do, do some freelancing for a magazine on the side. I will say that being a newspaper, being a reporter of any kind for any organization is an awesome job. I mean, it's just so much fun. It's like you get to stick your nose in other people's business. If you're, if you think it's interesting, you know, it's, you walk down the street and you say, gee, I wonder what's in that building. And as being a reporter, you have a way to find out. It's, it's so cool. It's wonderful. (laughs) But as a career, I don't know where it's going or how to build it. So if people are interested, youngster, you know, somebody in college or somebody wants to go into it, I say, absolutely go into it. It's a blast. You will learn many skills that are soft skills, they call them, you know, like, you know, how to how to charm people, how to put up with people you don't like if you, you still want to have information from them, how to find out the person you want to like, how to organize your thoughts and all that kind of stuff it's, it, that that is incredibly valuable in many fields. Just don't think that if the time comes that you suddenly think you, someday you want to buy a house or, you know, raise a kid, uh, this may not be the field to work in. but. By then, you will have already had a lot of fun. You know, you've gotten to sit in a murder trial. None of your friends have sat in a murder trial, and you have. So things like that. Um, it's a lot of fun. So absolutely go into it. Just be realize that, you know, when you're 35, you may not still be in it, which is fine. I think that's good advice. Um, <laughs> any other or any new projects or anything new that you want to share with us about stuff that you're working on? I don't usually look that far ahead of what I'm going to do. In fact, we have a Monday morning meeting, uh, you know. Uh, so one of the things that COVID has done is now I work from home most of the time, which is great. Has it has its drawbacks. It means I have I stumble on fewer stories just wandering around because I'm not here wandering around as much. Um, so there are there are some journalistic drawbacks. But anyway, so most of our meetings are actually over group phone. Excuse me. And we have a Monday morning one that says, hey, what are you doing this week? And my answer is always, I don't know. You know, I got some vague <laughs> thoughts, but I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody to see who's going to be around and, 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 and what's going on. I mean, I've, so at the moment I was looking at enrollment data as to whether there's anything, any interesting trends we can talk about. There's a, there's a webinar next week on, on uh, people who own private wells. And I'm actually going to write an advance on it just so people will know maybe the Think about their well, because about a third of New Hampshire gets their water from a private well, including me. And a lot of times people sort of forget about it and 
and it goes bad. So, so that's that's sort of a, a minor thing. I'm hoping to talk to uh, folks about the realities of electric school buses. Uh, so, if you've there's some grants that came out, and some there's a few school districts in New Hampshire getting electric school buses. Which electric school buses are awesome. They are a terrific technology, but you got to be ready to use them. So, I hope to be talking about the realities of how to set up your your network so you can take advantage of them or whether you can do virtual grid and get some money that way. So, so there's, there's a lot of stuff like that, but I don't have any like major, you know, earth shaking projects in mind. I sort of let things, let things come my way as they do. And usually that means in late December when everything slows down, I'm scrambling to, to find stuff to write about. Well, that all sounds pretty good to me as, as someone who has a private well and who puts his kid on a school bus every day. I, I'll look forward to seeing those columns. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to inhale those fumes while you're waiting for your kid to get up on the, uh, you know, go through the door? Yeah, well, they're not, they, they're, they're a lot, uh, they're not as stinky as they used to be. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. So, Well, thank you so much, David. It was really a, a lot of fun uh, to talk with you today. And, and you, you showed that you've picked up a lot of that charm uh, that you talked about earlier, because I think you charmed us today and, and we appreciate your time. I'm always happy to talk about myself. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank All you. Right. Thanks a lot. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.